On this edition of the Good Morning Hamilton podcast with me, Scott Radley, sitting in for Rick Zamperin, we are going to be chatting about the Omicron virus and a new study that says half the people, more than half the people who got it, didn't even know they had it. You could look at this as good news or bad news. Which is it? We'll try and find out. Ontario's plan to stay open program plan has been announced. Good news, bad news, a good plan, a bad plan. Dr. Stamatopoulos who comes with passion every time she joins us. She's going to be talking about this one. We will be getting into Lisa Laflamme and the ongoing story that will not go away. People are not letting go of this one. We'll, we'll get into that one. Hockey ratings, interest apparently down according to new numbers. We're going to be chatting about Hamilton's and Canada's international children's games team. They are just back from England. Some athletes, young athletes from Hamilton who did exceptionally well. And to top it all off, Canadian music legend David Wilcox, who's playing the Dundas Cactus Festival. He will be joining us. Stick around. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. It's the story about Lisa Laflamme and CTV and Bell letting her go and the outrage and outcry over this. I want to bring in Bill, Bill Briou, great TV writer, TV critic, Bill uh, Briou TV... Briou TV is his website. You can go look it up. I'll get it right, Bill, eventually. It's a Friday morning. Uh, how are you this morning? I'm fine, Scott. How are you? I am excellent. Are you as surprised as I am? Not that there was an outcry about this. I'm just, I'm amazed how enormous the upset is about Lisa Laflamme leaving because, well, just because it just, it's, it doesn't seem like it's a sort of typical Canadian celebrity news story. It, it, I thought there would be some people upset. I didn't think it would be this. No, I'm not surprised at all. I think that viewers really identify with the anchor and the main person in the chair. And, um, you know, remember when uh, uh, Hockey Night in Canada replaced Ron McLean there for a couple yep. of years? Um, people flipped out then because you're used to the individuals. And if you notice in the United States, uh, they rarely do things like this. You know, the, the guys who were in the anchor chair, and it was it was generally men back then, were there for 25, 30 years, Dan Rather and, um, you know, all, all of Peter those. Peter Jennings, yeah, Tom Brokaw, yeah. And, yep. and, and same in sports. The the people uh, like, you know, um, Al Michaels is uh, it is well into his 70s, and everybody loves listening to him on, on uh, Sunday Night Football. So um, you have to be very, very cautious. And CTV always was in the past when they did the handoff when Lloyd Robertson uh, left, um, you know, it was a six-month uh, victory lap and then uh, a wonderful on-air handoff. And, you know, that was the classy way to do it. So when you drop the ball that hard, yeah, people notice. Lloyd Robertson, great you brought that up and great you brought up the fact of the victory lap and he was, I think, 77 or something at that time. Yes. And yeah. this has been one of the things that has spawned the real anger, the suggestion that, you know, a lot has been made of Lisa Laflamme's gray hair and was she just getting older and they wanted a fresh face or was she, was it because she was a woman or all of these things have led to the anger here. I, I mean, it's certainly what you're just saying for sure about the fact that she is a familiar face that people have grown used to and comfortable with, but there are other elements of this that are also really making this thing blaze. Oh, is there ever? And, you know, you're, you're, here she, she wins the Canadian Screen Award in April as the best anchor on, on in Canada. Um, you know, the newscast is number one, has been for decades. 
and uh, is not just barely number one. It's two to one almost. You know, it's well in front of the CBC and the global national newscasts. And um, so, what's the panic? You know, and and is it that she let her hair go gray? I mean, you you, you allow these questions to be raised, and um, I, I think a lot of people identified with her. A lot of women saw her as. Uh, you know, really accomplished and somebody who broke the glass ceiling and were representative, not just as a female uh, news anchor, but as someone um, with gray hair. You know, like during the pandemic, a lot of us let our hairs go gray and everything. And uh, what the hell? Here's here's Lisa Laflamme, and she has the guts to do this and looks great. Is this truly a factor? You know, that's what people are asking. This is, we talked about this earlier in the week and I was saying, and I really believe this, that if it's not that, if there's something else going on that was behind this or that, that pushed Bell to make this decision, say what it is. You kind of now have to say what it is. You're a communications company, communicate. And if this is what it is, if it is because of her gray hair or whatever else, and if you're too embarrassed to say what the reason is publicly, that should have been the little voice in your head saying, if I'm too embarrassed to make this case, it's probably a bad reason to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's um, reports today. I mean, that, that, I mean, Bell had a meeting yesterday. A couple of their top executives, including Melling, who was the new uh, news um, vice president, the director there, uh, was at the meeting. And um, my goodness, you know, talk about the Nixon tapes. You know, somebody <laughs> smuggled out a recording of, of this meeting. And, um, you know, the, the the people in the newsroom are really upset and just they let it rip. And they ask pretty tough questions. And they're the questions we're asking today, you know. And, and so the, these folks have put themselves on the spot, which is very, very unusual um, at Bell traditionally. And so uh, it does make you wonder what's going on. I wonder, I mean, the, the, the thought crossed my mind and probably has crossed a lot of people's mind. Does Bell play the role of Harold Ballard and allow Lisa Laflamme to play the role of Roger Nielsen? And um, for people who don't remember the reference, years <laughs> ago, Harold Ballard fired the Leafs coach. There was an outcry and he brought him back. Now, he wanted him to wear a bag on his head over on the, on the bench for drama. That won't happen. But is there a chance that all of this leads to a glorious return for Lisa Laflamme, or are heels dug in now? Uh, there's no chance this leads to a glorious return for Lisa Laflamme. Uh, I, not just that heels dug in. I just think this is something you can't just walk back. You know, in that analogy with Roger Nielsen, I think, like, you know, <laughs> the Leafs analogy, there was a coach who came out with a bag on his head. Was that Roger Nielsen? I mean, there was Daryl Sittler ripped the C off his sweater during the Ballard era. Uh, is that Sachadina going to come out and then to take off his tie? I, I don't, you know. <laughs> um, but it, it, it is fascinating, um, and I feel really bad for Sachadina because here's this wonderful opportunity. He's the anchor of the CTV National News, and it's really kind of wrecked. You know, like absolutely now uh, this guy who's earned it. He's genuinely wonderful at what he does. Uh, he should be celebrated. And instead, you know, exactly, he's cast in the Roger Nielsen role. 
Right, he's going to be vilified for this because people, some people wrongly, I believe, but are going to look at him as the guy who, uh, almost like, well, it's different. I, I was going to say like Jay Leno taking over for Conan on The Tonight Show. That's a different scenario, but he will be vilified as the guy who bounced her out when he had nothing to do with it. Right, and so that's the thing. We don't know the whole story. We don't know if uh, people even higher up at Bell said, you know, um, we're, we're looking for half a million dollars, fire the anchor. You know, it, Bell has become right. a very bottom-line company. There's a lot of evidence of that. And, and traditionally, they just outspent everybody. Uh, those days are over. And so, like other companies, they're looking for ways, you know, the broadcast TV business isn't as robust as it once was. Audience levels are dipping. Streaming services are getting really competitive. And so, yeah, it's probably, it was a bottom-line decision, but... It was handled so badly, and to name Fachadina the new anchor the same day that you gas Lisa yeah, yeah, just the optics are terrible. One more thing before we let you go, Bill, because we're short on time. I was reading something about the ratings to do with this story. CTV National News um, is eighth on Numeris's ratings list. They they tally what's going on in the Canadian viewing public week after week. They were eighth. They were ahead of Global National, which was 15th on the list. CBC's national news never makes the top 30. How Different story here, but how is it that we pump a billion plus, a billion five, whatever it is, into CBC and our that show can never be watched by anybody? You're right. Uh, that's how far, I mean, the CBC news may be watched by 350,000 people a night. Uh, Global's like 650 and you know, the CTV one was 850. All of those are down, um, you know, a bit. And, and that's just television now, broadcast. But um, I think that one factor you have to, you know, remember is that the CBC national news is at 10 o'clock. So it's going up against all the top dramas, uh, on TV, everything that's simulcast, the, the U.S. hour-long hits. And so it, it's always at a disadvantage. But uh, you're right, they have more coverage across Canada, that, that the brand is really well-known. Uh, but it's, it's just a different world than it was 30 years ago mm. when it was competitive. It, it really isn't anymore and hasn't been for a long time. Um, and But you have to look at the whole universe of newscasts and how people get their news now. And I'm sure this yep. factored into Bell's decision because a lot of us look at our phone to get the news when we want it now. We're not really sitting down at 10 or 11 anymore. It is It is a different world. i got to jump in, Bill. We're short on time. But listen, I'll always love having you on here. Bill Briou, uh, go look up his stuff online. Excellent, excellent TV writer. Bill, thank you for this. My pleasure, Scott. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We're talking, of course, about health things with Omicron and COVID. It is, the fall means we go back indoors, we're closer to people. There's a chance, just in the last segment we're talking about, there's a chance that you could end up being exposed. We don't know if there will be another outbreak, on and on and on. So the Ontario government now is, uh, has just released its plan for the quote, plan to stay open. Includes boosting private clinic surgeries, legislating powers to let elderly people be moved to long-term care homes that isn't necessarily of their choosing. Um, What do we do? Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos is an associate teaching professor at Ontario Tech University. She's a long-term care advocate. She's co-founder of Canadians for Long-Term Care. She joins me now. How are you? Hi. You know, I've had better days, for sure. Is that right? How are you? Oh, yeah. Okay, so... 
better days because of this plan or better days for something else? Of course. Okay. Of course. I mean, this was, you know, I don't think I've been up this upset since the military reports were leaked. This is, I don't think people realize just how egregious this is. Uh, You you know, when you get me crying during live interviews, uh, that doesn't happen often. And yesterday was one of those days where I just could not believe that after everything that has happened to these poor seniors and persons with disabilities in Ontario during this pandemic, particularly in long-term care, that this is what you would do to further kick them while they're down. I, I didn't even have this on my bingo card for how terrible and unethical and immoral you could be as a government. But let alone, here we are, and this is what's happening. Okay, so the, the idea, uh, presumably, the idea behind, and, and just to be clear, mm-hmm. is your, most, your point of greatest contention is the part about moving them to other places that wouldn't be their choosing, or is there something else that it's you're all pointing of your finger? Here's the thing. Okay. It's all a whole bunch of horse, you know what. L- let's be real here. They're trying to, first of all, in some bizarre world, Paul Calandra is trying to say that long-term care is suddenly in a position to assist acute care. What are you talking about? This man clearly has not spent time in long-term care because if he did, I would tell him, and you can find this out on your own if you engage with the data, that nearly a third of all the homes are currently in outbreak. Homes as recently as two weeks ago had to shut down and relocate their residents because there are not enough staff to care for them. Okay, we have homes that are being taken over because they are violating the legislation as is and not providing proper care and working conditions for their staff. This is happening immediately right now. This is all underway and it has never stopped. Our sector is on fire. And somehow this man is saying that everything is dandy and we suddenly can accept another 2,400 patients. So you're going to send patients out of the hospital where they certainly have better care and more care into facilities that are literally riddled in outbreak and that don't have appropriate levels of staff to care for them. Are you kidding me? And not just that, the presumption that, oh, well, we're freeing up hospital beds for people who need them in crisis right now. Can we also take a moment here to recognize that ALC patients, these patients they're planning on booting out because they don't think they deserve the beds, evidently, they are not in intensive care units or the emergency departments that are closing down. Those are the places in the hospital that are having the biggest struggles right now. And those units, we know, have specialized staff. You cannot just take the staff from ALC units, which are effectively PSWs and nurses, and put them into those more intensive care units. You can't. We all know this. This, has been, this is a known fact. So what are you trying to say, that, that suddenly this is a solution? It is not a solution. It will do nothing to assist what is happening in acute care. All it will do is further destabilize long-term care. And frankly, harm those patients that are, will be coming from hospital into these facilities that most of <laughs> are now in outbreak. One of, the, well, yeah, one of the huge challenges um, that is going to be here, and I don't know that it matters for this particular question, I don't know if it matters who is in government at this moment, one of the huge challenges, and we've been talking about it for months now, yeah. is that there simply isn't the space, long-term care beds, there aren't the beds sure. available. In the middle, now, hopefully we're on the back end of the crisis, but in the middle of a crisis, how do we solve this problem when so much is just about bailing water, just trying to make sure that it's as least damaging as possible? How do do we fix things while trying to just not hurt things? Here's the thing. This is the most aggressive and unethical Band-Aid. Keep in mind what they're doing here is they have this is historical. This is unprecedented. I want to hit this home with, with the people that are listening. 
they are removing for the first time ever. This is historically against the law in Canada. This has never happened. You are removing the right to consent. They have amended the legislation because this is this is unlawful. And this is historically unlawful. Forget it being wildly morally repugnant, which it is. And you would never think that a government would even consider doing this. But you have now amended legislation to make what has historically been unlawful lawful by being able to send people to homes that they do not want to go to, that may be hours away from their loved ones, and maybe homes that are known to be bad actors. They could be sent to military-occupied homes that we all read about, that people are, are understandably frightened to go to, and they are not putting those homes on their list of five options that families well research beforehand. How can you just say, nah, forget it, Grandma. You know, it doesn't matter. We're going to send you to a home in outbreak that has been known to violate and abuse and neglect its residents. And this is going to be how you spend the end of your life. No choice. No free will. Uh, apparently, when you become a senior in Ontario, then you, 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 what, you lose your fundamental rights? How, does, how is this happening? This is the most unprecedented, egregious thing, frankly, that this government has ever done. And, and, and it's happening at the end of the summer, while presumably people are on vacation and not paying attention, you got to wonder about the timing there. And these poor people, families are going to suffer. And they say, this is temporary. Give me a break. If it's temporary, Minister Calandra, why are you amending legislation which would make it permanent? Why? Someone asked them that question. None of this adds up. All this looks like is a measure to help bad actors fill up their beds because you need to fill up your beds to a certain quota to get your money. So how is this not a, an initiative that will end up helping bad actors, many of which are for-profit, you know, vulture capitalists extracting capital? As we know, during, you know, the pandemic, they were giving millions and millions and tens of millions to their shareholders while the residents died in squalor. But okay, this sounds like a great plan. I wish we had lots more time to talk because uh, I would love to talk to anybody with this yeah, much passion about any kind of topic. That's okay. Uh, Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, uh, we will talk again, though, about this. Associate Teaching Professor at Ontario Tech University. Uh, clearly, I was going to say long-term care advocate. I didn't need to actually point that out to people <laughs> after that. They know you're a long-term care advocate after that. Listen, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. Have a great day. That is, uh, boy, there is some passion there. That's that's great. We, You know what? Whether it's a topic that you agree with, disagree with, aren't sure. We love it when people have passion and that was demonstrated right there. So thank you to Dr. Stamatopoulos. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Were you one of those people, one of those lucky people, nudge, nudge, you know, tongue in cheek, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Were you one of those lucky people who got covid I, I would think by now, most people have had it. The majority anyway, if not the great majority, the majority have probably had it to some degree. Were you one of the ones? I did about a month and a half, two months ago, I got it. And the irony, the funny part about it was when I got it, I had no idea that I had it. My only symptom was that I felt tired, but I had also been working a ton and thought, oh, you know what? I'm just worn out. That was it. No sore throat, no headaches, no nothing else, just feeling tired. Well, there is a new study out that has found more than half of the people who have been infected with Omicron were unaware they had it, just like I was. Dr. Susan Cheng, uh, MD, is the director of the Institute for Research on Healthy Aging in the Department of Cardiology at the Schmidt Heart Institute at Cedars-Sinai, I'll say that right. And she is the author, corresponding author of the study. She joins us now. Uh, Dr. Cheng, thank you for your time today. 
Thank you so much for having me. This is, um, I, I'm trying to decide if when we hear that half the people who had Omicron didn't know, if this is a good news story or if this is a bad news story. My, my inclination leads towards good, but I can also see there might be some issues here. This is a great question, and it really is a bit of both, uh, good news and bad news. You know, what we really found is exactly what you said. You know, this is really more evidence that this is, this virus really affects different people in very, very different ways. And some people, it's a very bad cold. And many people, like you, it's, it's minimal to no symptoms at all. And yet still some people get very, very sick. And so we're, we're learning more and more about this very stealthy virus. Let, let's Okay, let, let's break down what would be the good news and what would be the bad news. Let's, let's start with the bad news first so we can finish on a high note. Um, the bad news <laughs> would seem to be that if people don't know they have it, they would be disinclined to take precautions and then they'd be around other people, which theoretically, maybe not theoretically, maybe very practically, could mean that it gets spread around a lot faster, correct? That's exactly right. And the really bad news is that we still are not good. We haven't been able to figure out how to predict who are those people in the population who are the ones who will get very sick because the virus affects some people very severely. And we can't exactly predict who those people are. Those are the people we need to protect. And so more testing, more awareness is is really going to help, especially those people, but really the public as a whole. Okay, so that that clearly is the the danger here, especially I would think if somehow the virus, as it has a few times before, morphs into something slightly different, which is more potent, then all of a sudden you could have a problem. And that that's, you know, that that is pretty clear. That's a pretty logical response. The flip side, though, is if half or more than half the people don't know they have it, does that not suggest that perhaps we're at a point now where we can be a little calmer about this because the it, it's not like early on yeah. with Delta or something where people were going to end up in the ICU. It's it's a cold now for a lot of people. Uh, absolutely. As a, as a society as a whole, we don't have to be as, as fearful. We don't have to be as worried um, to leave our house, to go back to work, to go back to school. These are all very, very good things. Uh, I think the... Um, the one caveat really is, of course, that if we ignore this completely, uh, it's not just a matter of those, you know, those vulnerable individuals who are still at risk, but it's also, unfortunately, the fact, as you just pointed out, the longer the virus is allowed to linger among us, the more it has a chance to turn into something else, and that something else could be another version that is even milder, potentially more transmissible yet, but even milder. Or it could go in the other direction, which is, of course, not something any of us want. What about that? Because do, I don't know how viruses work. I know, as, as we say, we know they change over time. We know they morph. Mm-hmm. But do they generally, as a pattern, go from being less potent to suddenly being more potent? Or they, do they generally peter out and we're seeing that process that it was really bad and now it's getting less and less and less? That, that's a great question. That's what a lot of people are trying to study right now, in general, a virus uh, evolutionarily or however you'd like to look at it, tries to continue to exist in any given environment by any means possible. And the most logical, if you will, means is to um, be more transmissible, less likely to kill its host, and so uh, milder in form. Now, that said, if the virus is living among uh, uh, hosts 
who happen to be more immunocompromised, less likely to clear it, it really does have the chance to turn into anything. So uh, that could, again, be a milder form or it could be a form that is less mild. So if we now, through this study, and it's a fascinating thing because I think it's going to, a lot of people are going to say, well, that makes sense then because I didn't, like me, I didn't really feel anything and didn't even know I had it. But could this be a guide? We're, We're constantly being still told that you should be getting your booster shots or whatever else. It's a hard yeah. sell for someone, doctor, who had it and had no symptoms really to be told, oh, you need to go get another booster. You need to get another. Is this a guide that we could use to say, look, if you're one of the people who had bad symptoms, you are the ones who should be definitely going and getting your booster. And if you're one of the people who didn't have symptoms, maybe you are, your body is better able to function without it. Is this some way we could target who gets those shots? You know, that's a terrific question. And, and one that um, I think actually should be the focus of uh, some of the ongoing work. We actually don't know that the correlation between symptoms and uh, viral loads is, is, is maybe a little clearer. So the higher the symptom burden, probably the higher the viral load at that given time. But what you're really asking is about immunity. So then afterwards, what happens if somebody has dealt with a high viral load, they've had a lot of symptoms, does that mean they're, they have greater immunity afterwards? Or is it the person like you who didn't have that many symptoms at all because your immune system, your immune reserve was so robust, you were able to clear the virus very, very quickly and does that mean you actually have greater amount of immunity and protection or that's longer lasting? We actually don't know the answer to that question, but we do know that in either of those two types of individuals, a booster vaccine dose really does help because in either case, the immunity does wane. We actually do see evidence that we still don't know who has the greater lasting immunity, but it does wane over time. And we do see evidence that each additional dose of booster augments your immunity back not only to baseline, but potentially even higher than it was before. So, so we're very, very hopeful that with each exposure, whether it be infection or an additional booster, that continued additional exposure uh, that we will get, that we do get, we choose to get in terms of vaccines, really helps to augment and make us better and better off as time passes. That's hope. Dr. Susan Chang uh, from Cedar sinai really uh, author of this study. Really appreciate your time today. Thanks for taking a few minutes. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. David Wilcox is going to be playing tomorrow evening at the Dundas Cactus Festival. You can find him on the stage on Saturday evening, I think around 9 o'clock. He's coming on. We're just trying to connect with him. We're going to get him on in just a moment here. But this is, I tell you what, there are... And I've never understood this because when I said, I hope you know David Wilcox's music, most people I think do, but I do hear from people who go, who? I'm not really sure. How do we not know? This is a guy, we have some people in this country who, some artists, and, and you know, I don't want to be insulting anyone. We have some artists in this country who get an awful lot of attention for their music that shouldn't. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. We have the the CanCon rules really help some people, really help some people. Um, somehow they haven't helped everyone the same. And some of our most amazing musicians and fun musicians and people that really write great stuff and do and perform amazingly somehow don't always get the same attention. I don't know when I when I when I listen sometimes to who is getting played all the time. Yeah, there is 
audience driven to a point, but especially back in the eighties. I mean, and that's where, that was my sweet spot was, you know, high school and coming through. That's when music is so big to you and you're, you go back and look at who were the Canadian artists who were getting tons of play back then. And to this day, you're like, why were they getting all the attention? It's a great question about CanCon. How, how, how is that group? Maybe if you are needing that help so much, it says something about the fact that maybe you're not really that good. Let's give the airtime to people who really are that good. Got about two minutes here left, and we have been able to hook up with David Wilcox, who joins us now. David, how are you this morning? I'm excellent, thank you. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thanks for joining us. I, you know what? I'm uh, I'm thrilled that you're coming to Dundas this weekend. You have, ever since I saw you play at the Ryerson Initiation Picnic back in like 1984, you have been on my wow. list of, oh yeah, no, long, long time ago, never stopped listening. So, and oh, I'm, thank I'm, you. I'm, well, you know what? And, and you have been doing this, for so long and so well. I don't know how you keep it up. Honestly, I don't. Well, I love it. And the thing is, I get so much energy from the audience. And uh, we've played the Cactus Festival before, and it's great, you know. And uh, um, so it's, we're looking forward to it, you know. Your, your website, and I love this, your website, and I agree with it, it says singer, songwriter, and Canadian legend. W- what is the secret sauce to becoming a Canadian legend to earn that title? <laughs> don't die. <laughs> Good start. Keep That's breathing. Start. Yes. That's a good start. But it's well, no, it, but helps. There's some, it helps, but there's something about the music as well. Like your music, uh, you know, I, I was just saying to someone, I don't know how your music has not, I mean, you, you obviously have a huge fan base and people come and watch. There are people who are far, far less talented who have had bigger hits on the charts and things. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not quite sure I understand why all this works all the time, but I, I think legend certainly applies based on what you do. Well, thank you, my friend. I appreciate it. I'll take it. (laughs) Whatever, you know, but uh, I just love to play music and I consider myself a musician and I try to, you know, give my best when I get a chance to play like tomorrow night, you know. That is, uh, well, we got, unfortunately, I wish we had a lot more time, David. We don't, but tomorrow night at the Cactus Festival in Dundas, nine o'clock, David will be on the stage. If you've never seen David Wilcox play, I'm telling you, uh, make a point of getting there. Leave a parking spot for me somewhere in Dundas, but um, get down there. Uh, It'll be worth your while. David, thank you so much for joining us, even for a minute or two. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Scott. Okay. See you there. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. International Children's Games were just held in Coventry, England, and a bunch of people from Canada, Hamilton in particular, were over there competing and not just competing, doing really well. Leanne McConnell is executive member and swimming coach with Hamilton's International Children's Games team. She joins us now. Leanne, thanks for the time today. Hi there. How are you? I'm great. This is um, the International Children's Games is a really interesting event because we in Hamilton should be really familiar with it. We've hosted these twice, I recall, right? In 94 and 2000. This is something that I don't know if everybody knows what they are, but they probably should if you've lived in the city for any period of time. Yes, I would agree because when I do talk about the games and I call potential athletes that I'm looking for selection, you know, sometimes even the parents have not heard of our games. So that's one of our goals is to get, uh, you know, more recognition and more understanding about what we're, we're there for the kids. Well, for those who don't know, then um, explain, put into uh, sort of a context of where in the food chain international children's games would be for young athletes. 
Uh, for these athletes aged uh, 13 to 15, mostly primarily we take 14 to 15-year-olds, um, they would be in line with um, a national competition at an elite level. So, for example, when I coach swimming, uh, the kids that particularly do very well are uh, young athletes that would um, participate in the national events for youth um, across Canada. So for them to actually go and compete internationally means they are now racing against the best uh, athletes from their particular cities, from their countries. For some of these, would this be their first taste of international high-level competition? Absolutely. And it's, it's something that will live with them for the rest of their lives because whether or not they medaled or made finals they were able to meet and greet these athletes from across the world. And that is particularly the one thing that uh, the kids talk to me about is that, you know, to stand up on a block next to somebody who is from Israel, from Coventry, uh, they were from, typically they were from Seoul, Korea and swimming that mm. did very well or Bangkok. So the kids got an idea that, you know, for them to go, with aspirations of making the Olympics one day, they were getting the, you know, the idea of, wow, you know, I might be ranked third in Canada, but here I am racing against kids my age across the world. You know, they have to be obviously good swimmers, tennis players, soccer players, whatever to get here. But there's also, I would think that that experience, you probably as a coach can get a bit of a taste right off the bat of the psychology of a kid and the ability to deal with pressure and these big moments and everything else and who who really has it in them naturally to rise to those occasions. Yes, for sure. Because the conditions in which we compete in, um, for example, I know soccer and tennis competing outside in the heat wave that the UK is currently going through um, would be unlike something that we would do here where we would typically give them um, breaks or longer periods of time in between matches. Um, these these kids had to get up and, and perform repeatedly at their best, and um, which they did, which they did very well. Um, and again, it is, you know, the idea that this is outside their comfort zone for some of them. And um, we are there to support them and to help them bounce back, whether it's from one game to the next or one match to the next. And uh, they did very well with it. We were very, very impressed. Remind me now, because in the press releases that came out about this, it was referred, the athletes from here were referred to as Team Hamilton. For those who go over, are they representing the city, their club, the country? Are they Team Canada, Team Ontario, or is it Team, or are they representing the city they're coming from? Um, they represent the city. So typically what happens is we did host, like you said, in 94 and 2000. So we were a part of the international um, games, you get selected by your city. So ours, our athletes were representing Hamilton, great ambassadors that they were. Um, typically, though, when we go to the pool, for example, we will sit with um, the cities from Canada and kind of bond together. So mm. in swimming, we were sitting with uh, Kelowna and Windsor and Halifax. So um, those are the cities that have primarily been involved with the international games and it's different for each sport because you don't have to for example we didn't bring track and field this time so we wouldn't have had representatives there you're only allowed mm. so many after 10 games so uh just as an example here um 
from Hamilton, Dylan Ginsburg and Josh Brown, they won bronze in boys doubles tennis. The girls soccer team uh, won the consolation game, won nothing against Cork from Ireland. But let's go to the pool because that's where, uh, that's that's you and that's where you, our team had the most success. Brady Lewison, silver in the 50 meter fly, bronze in the 100 meter backstroke, bronze in the 200 meter backstroke and just missed the podium for a fourth medal, fourth in the 50 meter backstroke. Uh, this sounds like someone we should be listening and watching for in the future. Absolutely. As well as uh, Aneshka Frickleton, she repeatedly just missed the, she made the podium in the Hunter Butterfly and then just missed in a number of her other races. Um, yeah, fourth in the back, in the 200 backstroke and fourth in the 200 Butterfly. So just right there for her. And uh, K- uh, Kins- Kingsley Wainwright, fourth in 400 individual medley and the girls 400 meter freestyle relay team fifth place. So amazing results could have even been more medals that close, but like this is, this sounds like we've got some people on the horizon for, as I say, to really keep an eye out for. Absolutely. They, these young kids are, are on their way up. And after being at these games, they, they were telling me they didn't want to go home and just rest. They were excited to get back in the pool. Typically, swimmers would now take a break for the next couple of weeks. Some of them were very anxious to get back into the pool and get racing and, and you know perform even better, which was great to hear. No doubt. I mean, and this is this is one of the great things about this. There's a lot of great things about going to something like this, obviously, but that experience and and when you do have success there for that reason you just described, I would guess that that's a hugely motivating thing to see that you can compete with other people from around the world and you do have a chance down the road. 100%. It is something, whether they made that podium or just missed, like, for example, the girls relay team that plays fifth, that was the most exciting race for a number of people to watch just because we came kind of from behind and then the kids just kept fighting through and every one of those girls will leave thinking and knowing that, you know, I raced best times here. I can do this again when I get back in Canada. So that was the one thing that I kept hearing over and over again from them was if I can race in these conditions, uh, no air conditioning, difficult to sleep in the evenings, a lot of touring around, I can do this. I can do even better when I get home. So those are the things that we look for. And we, we know that these kids have got their hearts and their heads in the right place for racing. Um, we got to run, but do we know where is next year's international children's games? Uh, next year we are going to Korea. Oh, very nice. All right. Well, great country. Spent a summer there. That's uh, yeah. If you, if you are a 14 or 15 year old athlete, get on the team. (laughs) <laughs> it will be worth your while. Uh, Leanne McConnell, executive member and swimming coach with Hamilton's International Children's Games team. Leanne, thank you so much for the time today. You're very welcome. Thank you very much for the time. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The World Juniors are going on in Edmonton, although, again, not sure anybody knows that. It is, uh, you could you could set hungry lions free in the arena most nights and it would take them till the second period to find someone to chew on. Uh, not exactly a raging success, but there are other problems facing the game now too. I want to bring in Ryan Kennedy from the Hockey News uh, to join us chat about this. Ryan, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Uh, you are in Edmonton at the World Juniors. Have you been able yet to spot a fan? Yeah, you know what? For most of the games, it's been friends and family. If you don't have a big family, um, <laughs> I you know I would say for Canada's quarterfinal game, it was up to kind of a smattering. Uh, you know, the the upper bowl at Rogers Place here is uh, curtained off, uh, so it doesn't look as cavernous, but I think they said it was about 5,000 people uh, for that Canada game. 
But yeah, otherwise it's been very barren. You know, it's a staggering thing when you when you consider where this tournament has been. And I know it's in the summer now, and I know there's the Hockey Canada fiasco going on and everything else. But you know, even the Hockey Canada thing, we talked about it earlier in the week. The Hockey Canada scandal, if you want to call it that, and I think that's fair, would you would think would have affected ticket sales, but the ticket sales were available way before this story broke. So it's more than just that, it would seem. Yeah, and I, I think I think for you know walk-ups and individual tickets, that probably had an impact, but you're right. In terms of packages, something we've seen over the years, uh, you know, because Canada Canada does host this tournament quite often, is you seem to get years where the pricing structure is just a little too rich for the average hockey fan. Mm. And, you know, I, I think some people might think that they're, they're being taken advantage of with these prices. So they just say, you know what, I'll just watch it on TV. Uh, we certainly saw that in Montreal a few years ago. Uh, we even saw sort of a, a spillover effect when Buffalo hosted it right after right, Toronto right. had hosted it, where you were basically looking at the same group of people uh, that they were hoping to get into the stands because so many people from Southern Ontario uh, go to Buffalo for games. So I, I, you know, from what I'm hearing, that's a, a big part of it is people were balking at the prices. And again, it's, it's the summer people are at cottages and I think they call them cabins out West. Um, yeah. There's but, just other, there's other yeah, there's, stuff. It's a confluence for sure of, a, a, of several different things. And I, and I think the hockey Canada scandal is part of it for sure. But there's one other thing and why I wanted to bring you on today as well, because we, we've talked about this a little bit. And I, I'm still stunned when I see those crowds or non crowds, because it's just, it's so unusual, but there's a new Leger survey that has just come out asking people about their interest in watching hockey. And this is this has got to be a huge splash of cold water, not just anyone involved in Hockey Canada, but the NHL and everything else, because this survey is showing that a lot of sports have taken a little bit of a hit, but hockey by far the biggest. I mean, hockey has gotten walloped, it seems, relatively speaking, 10 15% in the number of people not watching anymore. Why? What's, what is, what's hockey doing that the other sports aren't or not doing that they are losing these viewers. Mm. Well, you know, if you're talking about uh, a mass North American audience, you know, hockey has obviously been number one in Canada forever, but it's it's usually number four or even number five in the U.S. Um, I would ha- I would have to think that, you know, with the pandemic, uh, people have sort of changed their patterns of entertainment. Um, you know, there's so many different things to watch in terms of different streaming services. I know I subscribe to a couple of them for, for TV watching. And, you know, I mean, for a while there, people could not go to games. And I, I think that's going to have a short-term impact uh, on every sport. But for, you know, for hockey, the challenge is to keep building, uh, especially in the U.S., now that they have the new American TV contracts, and and finding new ways of getting, you know, the the younger generations to to tune in because there are so many other options there. You look at the rise of uh, video games in terms of online streaming and, and sites like Twitch. Um, this is something that that young people love, and I know the NHL is making a really concerted effort right now to uh, you know they stream 
NHL uh, video games, and they're really trying to grow that viewership. Hmm. Because if you can get young kids interested in hockey, even if it's on the video game level, then you know the next thing they do is say, "Okay, well, I want to check out a real game." Uh, you know, obviously that's the the logic, at least. That would be. So, but the numbers, a, Ryan, the numbers though. Let me just read the numbers here because it's just uh, to me again, it's funny in the GTA, and I don't know if Hamilton's included in the, for this survey or just the complete GTA. Thirty nine percent of people who responded said they watched hockey as a teenager. Only twenty four percent do now. In Montreal, 47% did as a teenager, only 35% now. And those 55 and older overall across the country, 45% said they followed hockey in their teens. Now it's only 28%. They dropped 17% of the older viewers who, Ryan, you would think wouldn't fall into those watching video games and would be used to watching on TV in the old established cable TV way. So even the people that should be still there aren't. Yeah, and, and again, I think that goes back to, um, you know, if you think about it, when those people were teenagers, uh, how many how many channels were there on television? You know, that was sort of the beginning of the cable era where, I mean, and again, when I was growing up, um, you know, when I was a kid, you, you only had sort of a handful of, of major channels, um, and now you have just an explosion of options, and, and that's what hockey needs to cut through mm. is – how do you get people off of Netflix? How do you get them off Disney Plus and back to hockey? And I, I think what we're going to see, and, and Commissioner Gary Bettman actually alluded to this at the Stanley Cup final, is more streaming deals um, with, you know, they've already done a bit with ESPN in the States, but I think that's what you're going to see more of is they need to go where the people are and the people aren't going to, TSN and Sportsnet uh, as much yeah, as they used yeah. to. Uh, one more thing before we let you go. How much of this, they, they talk about GTA respondents, Montreal respondents. It's been 29 years since the Canadians won a cup. It's been 29 years since any Canadian team won a cup. It's been 55 years now since the Leafs won a cup. Do you think that success over time weans people out or lack of success? Do you think that there's any impact on this by the fact that the teams never win? I think there's the possibility if you're trying to bring in new fans, but for those who already follow teams like the Leafs and the Habs, uh, I almost wonder if there's an inverse effect because you've already invested so much of your life in these teams, (laughs) you know, and then you you have to look at teams like the Chicago Cubs and say, well, eventually they did it. So I'm just going to hang on a little bit longer. Yeah, I do. I do wonder about that. I do wonder if either of those teams, Montreal had a great year two years ago, but I wonder if either of those teams actually became, you know, if the Leafs go on a run ever, if they win a playoff series ever, if suddenly, you know, you see things turn around, if, if may, but who knows? I, you know what, you look at these numbers and as I say, I'm sure in the NHL headquarters and elsewhere, they're all scratching their heads too, wondering what are we doing and how do we get this turned around? But um, they're doing that in Edmonton right now where you are as well. So, you know, lots of questions here. Ryan Kennedy from the hockey news. Always appreciate you taking your time. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.